Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I hope Elder Rice isn't too worried about me. I've always felt that I was different to him. That I shined to him. I'm not sure how I know. Perhaps I'm ascribing too much importance to details that don't matter. Elder Rice has the kind of charisma that makes you certain you're special. Isn't that the most giving kind of charisma? I'm sure it broke his heart to see me thrown out of Haven. Even though he was the one doing it. That didn't sound right. What I mean is, it must have hurt him to exile me to the wilds. I could tell he felt bad, but I would have taken this over being hanged. Sometimes, when I wake up out here, I forget for a second everything. Who I am, who I was, where I am, what's happened. Existing in that nothing, that floating space of gauzy yellow light, knowing nothing but the tree branches above me. <sighs> Sometimes I wish I could just stay there, suspended in amber. Oh, I sound so, I don't know, aimless. That has always been my largest flaw. If I were back at home, my mind would be righted real quick. Haven is not a place for floating through life. I would rise with the sun and the smell of biscuits frying. I'd join Mama in the kitchen and throw ham in the pan and we'd eat. And then she would open up her parlor to receive those who wanted treatment. During this time, I would forage, collecting whatever Mama might need. Whatever we'd run low on. We all had roles. We knew what a day expected from us. And we fit those roles. If we thought we knew better, we'd learn very quickly to think again. I remember one morning, right before everything went so bad, I was collecting yarrow, I think, out in the forest by the ruined dome. I was following a rabbit, which I wanted desperately to catch for a pet, and it darted under an overgrown pokeweed bush. I had half my arm under that bush, attempting to coax the rabbit out with soft promises of crunchy carrots. A dull gleam caught my eye, and I spied an old coin, one from before. I pocketed it to admire later. A shadow passed over me and I looked up to see Elder Harris walking on the road. He smiled and nodded. I smiled politely and chastely, and turned back to my task at hand, but the rabbit had left, and I felt very sore about that for the rest of the day. In the kitchen, I angrily devoured bread smeared with a wasteful amount of jam, and wanted very badly to keep feeling angry, which is probably why I made a scene when Mama chastised me for returning without Yarrow for Mrs. Thomas, who was sitting right there expecting relief from her belly bloat and flatulence, the latter which she did not explicitly seek treatment for, but actions speak louder than words. Mama told me a young woman of 20 should not act like a girl half her age and look at my smudged face and how is any man going to want to marry someone who was getting older every day with dirt under her nails in front of Mrs. Thomas? 
Oh, that made shame bloom hot in my gut, and to cool it, I swept the jar of jam off of the table and felt very satisfied when it burst on the floor and a horrid deep red splattered as far as the white cabinets. I clenched my hands in my apron and told her I didn't want her boring life making bath sachets for bloated women and stomped up the stairs to my room, chased by Mama's wretched accusations of ungratefulness and dishonor. Truth be told, as soon as I reached my room, I was no longer angry, but I felt I should remain up there for posterity's sake. I was lying on my bed and thinking about how she was probably right and I did have to grow up sometime, but did it have to be right this second when I heard a familiar voice downstairs? I realized it must be time for Elder Rice's monthly rounds. I crept to the stairs and peered out from between the railings. I put my hands in the pocket of my apron and my fingers found the old coin. I rubbed my thumb over its worn edge while I watched quietly. He paid Mama for his bundle of herbs, passing her a fat envelope. Mama checked the envelope inside, depositing it into a clay jar on the counter. Elder Rice's eyes flicked to the hall, towards me for a second, but never meeting my eyes, and then he nodded curtly and left out the front door. I raced quickly and quietly down the stairs and out the back door. He was walking towards the forest, probably to his workshop, and I trailed him. He kept walking, seemingly oblivious to my presence, but at the edge of the woods, he stopped abruptly and turned around. I stepped back, my face hot. Although we had met like this often, I still felt awkward. I told him I had found a very interesting coin and would he like to see it? I marched up to him and presented it to him, cringing inside at my dirty nails. But he simply smiled, the crinkles around his eyes deepening. He took the coin and commended my find, but warned that the other members of the council would want him to confiscate any items from before. My stomach hurt to say it, but I agreed that the council were wise men. I did not say that I had hoped he would simply let me keep it, that he would make an exception for me. I nodded curtly and turned, walking quickly back to the house. He called out my name and I felt his hand on my shoulder. I froze, because members of the council were chaste men, forbidden from marrying. But if he had touched me, such an intimate act, with his hand heavy and warm on my shoulder, he told me that he would hold on to the coin for me, and once he had made sure it was safe, he would let me keep it, and that the council would never have to know. He smiled reassuringly. I knew that I was something different to him. I felt much better, and I told him that I was going to go catch a rabbit and turned to do so. His grip on my shoulder tightened and his face became strange and inscrutable. His ring burned icy through the thin fabric of my dress. His eyes searched my face for a moment, and his hand went to touch my hair, but withdrew. He told me I was good, and his voice caught. I was nervous and did not know what to say, so I stepped back and repeated that I was going to go catch a rabbit and that he probably had much work to do. Then I turned and ran to the ruined dome, a smile tugging at the sides of my mouth. I half-heartedly poked under shrubs, my shoulder still warm from his touch, not remembering to look for rabbits and instead turning the thought of marriage over in my head. If a man like Elder Rice could desire me, Perhaps my prospects weren't so bleak. Perhaps a young man in the village wouldn't mind the calluses on my hands and messy hair. Perhaps Elder Rice might consider leaving the council. 
After daydreaming for some time, I floated home and into the kitchen. The afternoon tea that Mama set out for me was sweet with my newly bright future, and then it was all over. I continued my journey towards the rising sun, hoping that I only had to follow the road east for long enough before I reached Haven. My interaction with the sisters sat bitter in the back of my throat. I felt the only thing that I knew was that I did not know a thing. Every once in a while, hopelessness rose in a tight ball in my stomach, and I saw but didn't see the road in front of me. I would squeeze the straps of my pack hard, the leather digging into my palms, and the feeling would dissipate the fog in my eyes. And there I was again, walking home. I was in the middle of squeezing, squeezing those straps, when the mist in my eyes cleared to reveal a sheer rock face looming ahead on the road. The rock cut into the sky dizzyingly high and continued on either side of the road so far I couldn't make it out. Carved into the rock where the road met it was a door with the word museum carved above it. I could not go around and I disliked the idea of leaving the road. After my last experience, I did not wish to enter. Who knew what was inside? I hated not knowing things. I approached the door and stepped away from it many times. I checked both sides of the road, but no new paths revealed themselves to me. I ventured off the road and continued until the ground became unpassable. Large rocks becoming boulders that eventually slanted downwards into thick fog. I returned to the museum entrance and huffed a big sigh. The door was a weathered gray wood, and I pressed my trembling hand to it. A small breeze escaped from the crack at the floor and rustled my skirts. The museum must let out somewhere else, and perhaps that somewhere else was the other side of this rock face. I pulled the door open, and the sisters flashed briefly in my mind's eye. I shook my head and they disappeared, and I stepped inside. The room was quiet and deathly still, I disliked how loud and alone my footsteps sounded. The back of my mind wondered dully where that breeze had come from, but I soon forgot to think about it. The room was a hallway, long and pristine and white, with three doorways along the left. The rest of the hallway was cut from stone, bare, except for the words, What do you want? etched into the opposite wall. I entered the first doorway and was stopped almost immediately by a long red velvet rope. A small brass sign was stamped with the word, The Baby. Beyond it was an immense and intricate diorama scene, a cross-section of a house. It was like a dollhouse, but if I were a doll. The rooms were decorated with care, with lace doilies and crocheted blankets thrown over hand-carved rocking chairs. A red-haired mannequin stood in the kitchen, cradling a rag doll with a head of bright red yarn. The mannequin's brow was furrowed with loving concern, her lips pursed mid-lullaby. The whole scene unsettled me, but I stepped closer to the velvet rope. As I did, the floor tile I stepped on shifted and clicked into place. I don't know how else to describe it, but the room sighed, and then the mannequin began to sway. She hummed softly and looked up at me with blissful, watery eyes. She was real. 
She stepped towards me with a sugary smile, and I stumbled backwards into something hard. I turned to look behind me, and a wall was there, and the doorway was gone. I spun back to find that the velvet rope had disappeared, and the woman was standing directly in front of me, so close the red yarn of her doll's hair grazed my chest, and its green button eyes stared vacantly into mine. I stood completely still, clutching my pack and breathing hard, and she giggled girlishly and whirled away. She looked to be about Mama's age, and I found it disturbing that someone so old would act like a little girl. A thought pierced my mind then. Is that what people think about you? I couldn't think on it too long because then she announced that it was feeding time and sashayed to the cupboard and pulled out a jar of something gray. She plunked herself down at the kitchen table and fished a spoon out of her apron and started spooning the gray mush onto the doll's fabric mouth. The gruel dribbled down the doll's smiling face and collected on the neck of its frilly dress. She told me to stop standing there and fetch her a rag. I always appreciate someone telling me what to do during an awkward situation because then I can get a rag instead of staring at a grown woman feed a fabric doll gray soup. I pulled a rag off of the counter and gave it to her, and she dabbed the doll's mouth, which just soaked the gruel into the doll's face and made me gag a little. She turned to me with misty eyes and said in a childlike voice, I love that Dolly is a baby. I did not know what to say, so I tried to smile encouragingly while I scanned the room for an exit. I love that Dolly will never grow up or change or become ungrateful, she said again. I very much disliked that she used that voice, and I wished she would speak normally. Past her was an open door, and I started to edge my way around the perimeter of the room. She stood abruptly and announced bath time and crossed over to the sink. She reached over and grabbed my wrist, ending my attempt at escape. I tumbled alongside her and watched obediently while she filled the sink with soapy water, all while she held tightly to my wrist. Help me undress, Dolly, she simpered. So she and I used our free hands to undress the little fabric doll while it smiled at us. She could have done it herself if she would just let go of me. I grabbed the doll's leg for some leverage and then my head snapped back and I saw white. She had slapped me. I reeled backwards kept upright only by her grip on my wrist. Don't touch Dolly! You'll tempt her and you'll take her away from me! Her smile was gone and her teeth were bared. There were so many thoughts running through my head, stumbling over each other. All that came out was, I don't want your stupid doll! And I yanked my hand from her as hard as I could and wrenched it free. She smiled and turned, unfazed, then dunked the doll into the sink full of water, scrubbing it like it was a dish, muttering, You can't leave, Dolly. You can't leave. In that revolting voice. I did not want to be here for any more of this, so I backed away towards the door. She let out a long breath, and the scrubbing stopped. She turned back to me, and now her face was slack. The wrinkles around her eyes and mouth, deep and haggard. She spoke again, this time sounding like a tired woman. She's not real, is she? She held the doll in her arms, and it dripped onto the floor in the silence that followed. The angry part of me wanted to throw that doll on the ground and tell her, of course it wasn't real. And the sad part of me didn't want to say anything at all. I stared at her, and the water kept dripping. And she turned away from me and began swaddling the doll in a towel. Don't tell me, she breathed. Don't tell me. 
Then the room sighed again, and I looked down and the velvet rope was back, and she was still again, holding the doll, a smile on her face. The doorway was back, and I was through it like a mouse through a hole. The hallway was quiet. I cautiously approached the second doorway and peered through it before entering. There was greenery exploding from every corner of the room, unlike any I've ever seen. A wood-planked pathway bisected the foliage. I stepped onto the path and the wood creaked beneath my feet. Spirals of deep green burst from moss-covered tree trunks. Misty golden beams of light sliced down between fans of waxy jade leaves. The wooden planks continued across a pool filled with clear blue water. Lily pads as wide as serving platters floated peacefully on the surface. I wanted to curl up on top of them and sleep. I banished the childish thought, turning instead to the concern that this no longer seemed like the room I entered. I forged onward until the trees and ferns closed in again. A small brass sign to my left read, The Chase. Fearing the strange nonsense that occurred the last time I read a small brass sign, I searched my surroundings and started. A small deer-like creature stood frozen, its unusual green eyes piercing mine. Its rust-colored fur gleamed in the sunlight. A rough hand clapped over my mouth, muffling my startled scream. A man's voice shushed me, and from behind the deer, a woman approached. Her thin arm gripped a spear, and her eyes shone like sharp rocks. Her face was smudged with dirt and her clothing was ragged. Her chest rose and fell quickly, and her cheeks were flushed. She looked at me and raised a finger to her lips, smiling wryly. I nodded, and the hand behind me dropped. Its owner stepped aside and crouched, motioning for me to do the same. He was thin too, with knobby elbows and knees and a gaunt face. I squatted down, and a second man approached from the other side of the deer, holding some kind of net. A twig snapped beneath the woman's feet, and the creature bolted right into the second man's net. The woman launched the spear into the little deer's side, and it kicked once, twice, and then was still. The man crouching by me approached the deer, and I followed. He flipped it and stabbed it in the neck, pulling down through its belly in one swift motion, I braced myself for blood, but instead, a white fluffy material burst forth, like the innards of a child's stuffed bear. The people seemed frustrated, but not surprised, and they kicked aside the carcass and gathered their gear. The man with the net rubbed his neck. The next one. The next one will be food, he said. The other two nodded grimly. The woman readied her spear, and they disappeared into the brush. I did not wish to go with them, for the whole scene had me feeling hopeless. They did not notice I stayed behind, nor do I think they would have cared. Once they faded out of view, I continued on the path, which spilled me out into the white hallway again. I paused in the hallway, quietly breathing and reminding myself that I needed to get home to Haven. We have a museum in Haven, but it is not like this. It is the town's museum of history, meaning that all of the town's history is documented there. There are small dioramas of the founders' original homes, but nothing that came to life or bathed dolls or hunted stuffed deer. 
There's a small section of artifacts from before, but most of them are labeled with cards that only have vague descriptions and specific warnings about sinfulness and wastefulness. As children, we would take class trips to the museum and spend a long time learning about important dead elders, but my eye would always stray to the items from before. Good students listened dutifully and did not ask questions, so I held the questions in my heart and peppered Mama with them when I got home. She liked hypothesizing with me about before, but became sour with questions about the elders. I approached the third doorway, emboldened by my memories of Haven. A harsh gust of wind carried me through, and I stumbled out onto a rocky gray beach. Gray water lapped at round gray stones. My skirts snapped and cracked in the wind. My hair whipped around my head in a dark, terrifying halo. Ahead, a driftwood shack slumped on the horizon. I trudged towards the small shelter, my feet slipping on the rocks and occasionally into small pools housing panicked aquatic creatures. When I reached the shack, my boots were soaked and my fingertips were blue. A small brass sign on the door read, The Curator. I was too cold to think about the sign. My fingers clasped around the door handle and I tumbled into the hut. The door slammed behind me and I took in the room. A fire crackled in the hearth, and the air was dry and warm. Obsidian feathers and green iridescent bottles hung from the ceiling. In the corner, a raven cawed from its bedpost perch, its eyes watching me intelligently. The small bed was draped in scratchy-looking fabrics. A simple wooden table and two stools squatted near the fire. A woman sat in one of the stools, drinking from a mug. Another steaming mug waited in front of the empty stool. The woman's bright green eyes smiled at me from above her cup. Her red hair was aflame with the light from the hearth. She looked almost like the sad woman with the doll, but her face was younger and her eyes were older. She gestured to the empty stool, and I sat. I sniffed at the mug. It was a fish stew of some kind. She laughed, and it was sharp like a knife. Embarrassed, I drank down the stew quickly and felt much warmer. Do you like my museum? She tilted her head as she asked, and her eyes reminded me of her ravens. I swallowed my mouthful of stew. No, I said. It's too sad. She laughed again, and then her face sobered and she looked into the fire. Yes, it is sad. She traced a slender finger along the table's edge. When people get what they want, the goal is accomplished. Then what is there to live for? I wiped my mouth. Couldn't they want something new? She smiled bitterly. Could they? Can people change? This all seemed very vague, and I wanted to know more about the people I'd encountered. That woman, she cut me off. My mother... She loves me. Too much. I looked at her more closely. The rag doll did bear a resemblance to her, as much as a simple doll like that could. I felt I was putting it together, and I felt very proud. And those people love catching deer? She waved her hand dismissively, and I deflated slightly. Those are cruel people that found every opportunity to hunt me down and terrorize me. I gave them all what they wanted. 
She paused and refilled my mug from a stout pot bubbling above the fire. Is there something you want? I nodded in thanks and gripped the hot mug in my still icy fingers. I sat back in my seat, thinking. Those people did not seem happy. I did not think that this woman was a benevolent one, but she wasn't pretending to be, and to me that meant something. Those people did something to her, and she thought they deserved punishment. This woman didn't know me from a bar of soap, so I figured my chances were all right. I gulped down another mouthful of soup. I want to go back to Haven. I want my life to be like it was. My voice shook a little, and I hated it. She narrowed her eyes and steepled her fingers on the table in front of her. The room tilted slightly. Should you? Her voice was almost teasing, and I felt a little insulted, but mostly nauseous. Of course I should want everything to go back to normal. She doesn't know what my life was or everything that had happened. In a huff, I grabbed my pack from the floor and started for the door, but the room turned on its side and I slammed into the floor. I lied there, panting heavily, waiting for the room to still. After seconds or days, I cautiously raised my head, and my eyes met Mama's. She was seated at the kitchen table, and we were in our home in Haven. She rose and smiled warmly, opening her arms. I couldn't be in her embrace fast enough. I held her tight to me, and I felt the air whoosh out of her lungs. She felt real, her ribs small, her flesh warm, her dress soft. I breathed deeply, expecting her smell, but nothing. No raw flour, no sharp herbs. I pulled back and looked into her eyes, and yes, they were her eyes. It was her smile, but... A sharp knock wrenched me from my thoughts, and I turned to the front door. Through the door's window, a male shadow knocked again. Louder, but with a lack of urgency that knew that eventually we would give in an answer. I looked back at Mama and her smile remained unchanged, and she pet my head with a work-roughened hand. The knocking continued. I searched her eyes. This isn't real, I said. Her eyes crinkled. But you'll forget that, she said. And what a beautiful promise. The knocking beat a staccato reminder into the air. I touched her face, and my heart hurt. Some feeling like anger, despair. How could I feel something so unfair? Something that feels so real that would be taken away if I woke up? Knowing I'll wake up, does that mean I will soon wake up? Her hand on my hair, her gentle eyes, once again a memory? What if I refused to wake up? Would I be like those people in the museum, having what I want while someone on the outside looks at my life and feels sick? I stepped back, my arms drifting to my sides. I shook my head, tears burning at the corners of my eyes. I looked at the floor. I don't want this. I murmured. A voice, lilting and almost musical, interrupted my thoughts. Couldn't you want something new? I froze. The red-haired woman was seated at the kitchen table. I don't want to change, I said, 
tasting the lie. My eyes left hers, and we were back in the beach shack. She smiled like she knew better, and plucked a hanging green bottle and pressed it into my hand, and in a swift motion, shoved me out the door and slammed it behind me. I stood on the doorstep, the wind violently embracing me again. I peered into the side of the bottle but could barely see inside. I shook it, and something almost like liquid moved. I sniffed at the mouth of the bottle. Smoky. I cautiously tipped it to my lips. Nothing. I peered down the bottle's neck and suddenly my fingers slipped. It dropped out of my hands and crashed to the rocks at my feet. Shards flew everywhere and smoke billowed upwards. I shielded my face and closed my eyes. When I opened them, I was standing on a road. Behind me was a rock face and a metal door, with the carving museum above it. A sign pinned to the door said, Closed. The sun was descending behind the rock face. So I had made it out. Sadness pressed heavy on my heart, and I threw myself on the door, beating my fists with all of my regret and anger and fear, while it stayed closed, indifferent. I sank to the ground. I am not sure how long I was there, curled up at that door, my cries bursting from my heaving chest, and my mother dead, while birds fed their babies in the trees and planned for winter. After some point, I felt nothing. Then a wave of insurmountable hopelessness. Then nothing. Once there was more nothing than bad, I adjusted my pack and set out on the road for the little bit of daylight I had left. The woman's last words to me rang in my ears. Should I want something new? What would happen when I got back to Haven? Things that had happened would still have happened. Gaps and questions rose to the surface of my memory. Going home had a new purpose. Safety, yes. Belonging, yes. Answers. I hope. Exile was written, performed, produced, and mixed by me, Kelly Nugent. The beautiful music that elevates this story to something I could have never imagined it could be was composed by the ever-talented Annalise Nelson. If you liked this show, please, please, please leave a kindly review on Apple Podcasts or tell your lover or friend or enemy about this show, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.